you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. again, church, uh, to all of you. And if you have your Bibles, please turn uh, to the passage. It's John chapter 12. And um, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew uh, or in the chair in front of you. John chapter 12. And um, we'll get started. What a wonderful time of worship, singing. And uh, I just want to say thank you to the worship team. Um, What a great job. And just leading us and preparing our hearts. You know, um, singing in worship is so important, isn't it? We've covered this, uh, how corporate worship is one way that we glorify God. Like we, we sing His praises as He's rightly to be praised. Um, corporate worship is, is how unbelievers among us actually witness the truths about God. When we sing, we are witnessing to them, those who are here. Um, corporate worship is a way that we teach one another, isn't it? Like, as we sing these truths about God, we are actually teaching one another these things. You know, I was thinking about it. Some of the most um, meaningful moments in my life or in in my walk as a Christian have occurred during times of worship. Can anyone, is that that true for you too? Some of them, like, uh, times that you've, you've shed tears, Right? Um, I, I, can, I can remember um, even last week, you know, from a deeper understanding of our sin, a deeper understanding of God's love, we were singing um, uh, Love Lifted Me, right? Love Lifted Me. And I remember looking around at you. I shouldn't have, I probably shouldn't have been looking around, right? Um, but I was looking around at you, and as I saw, and we were all singing this line, Love Lifted Me, when nothing else could help, Love Lifted Me. And I don't know about you, but last Sunday as we sang that, I was just struck with the weight of that truth. The weight of the, like, like when you think about the meaning of that, that, okay, love lifted a hopeless sinner like me when nothing else could help. Wow. I mean, what a meaningful moment in worship. Meaningful to worship with understanding. But sadly, um, I must confess, and maybe you are feeling this too, there are many Sundays, many Sundays in my walk as a Christian when honestly I didn't understand or, or fully grasp or fully appreciate the things we've sung. Okay, now you're looking at me like I'm the only one, but I think we've all been there, right? Where, where, you know, the worship has happened, but, or, or someone has prayed, like just, someone just prayed for us, or even the things that were taught, did I really understand what was done? Did I understand? You know, the worship team, it's not the worship team's fault, by the way, okay, in case you're thinking I'm going there, I'm not. The worship team could be leading your favorite song, right? Um, the, the, the tech team could have the balance of the instruments perfect, right? Like not too much Keith. Um, uh, just enough um, uh, Keith, and um, 
you know, your, your hands could be raised, your eyes could be closed. By all external appearances, you are here. But the truth is, your worship is without understanding. Worshiping without understanding. Well, as we come to this portion of Scripture that was read to us, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, this incredible palm branch waving time of praise and worship. That's what it was, a time of praise and worship when the Jewish crowds were laying down their, their, their outer garments, right, creating a pathway to welcome Jesus as king, to welcome him as their Messiah. In the, in, in the face of all of this, we're going to see that the disciples, like many of us today, did not understand what was taking place before them. Remarkable, isn't it? There they were, watching all of this unfold, and they didn't understand what was happening. So this morning, as we recount this event, um, which actually marks the beginning of the final week of Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, right? Before his death on the cross. This is the holy week, right? The passion week, the final week of his life on earth before he died. We will see why the disciples lacked understanding. That's my prayer. That most importantly, we as disciples today will, 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 will see how we can know and understand the king we worship. How do we really know and understand the king we worship? So with that in mind, again, if you're, if you're already there, John chapter 12, take a look in your Bible, John 12, and let us set the scene. Um, and we're going we're gonna to mention a few verses as we go, just to, just to remind you of where we've been. It was but a few short days until the Passover, right? That's verse 1, a few short days until the Passover, the annual feast that brought thousands of Jewish people to Jerusalem, right? So thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem, but this particular Passover was different, wasn't it? Why? There's a stir in Jerusalem. There's a stir. Why? Because as we read in chapter 11, apparently the news is, the word is, a man named Jesus actually raised a dead man to life. Okay, are you getting into the scene? Can you feel the stir in Jerusalem? So, so this is the news. You heard me right. The four days dead and with three little words. Anyone remember what the three words were? Lazarus, come out. And just like that, by the sheer power of his voice, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And as you can imagine, verse 17, the news was spreading. I mean, this, the news is spreading such that the people, when they heard that Jesus was at dinner, verse 2, Jesus is at a dinner party, right? Mary and Martha and Lazarus, I guess that's what you do when, when your brother who was dead is back alive. I guess you throw a dinner party, I don't know. Um, Verse 2, they're at dinner, but people have heard that they're there, and in Bethany, it's just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, in verse 9, the crowds came. The crowds came. This is what Pastor Dale taught us last Sunday. I, I mean, we got to see this, 
Right? Can you, can you put yourself in the, in the shoes of the crowd? Like, like he, he did what? He raised a man from the dead. I got to see this for myself. Who is this? Whose voice can raise the dead? I have to see this. Well, if you recall, the religious leaders, okay, throughout the Gospel of John, as we've been making our way through, they are having less and less of this, right? That, like, they've had enough, right? Like, they've had enough of this, of, of Jesus. Why? Because his signs, his teaching, were leading many of the Jews to believe in him. Verse, verse 11, the Jews were flocking after Jesus, and what does that mean? The chief priests and the Pharisees are losing their place. They're losing their place, John eleven forty three. 43. They're losing their place. Indeed, it seemed to them that the whole world was going after Jesus. That's what it seemed to them, verse 19. The whole world is going after Jesus. Now, John doesn't tell us this in, in this account, but, but, but this, this event, okay, is, is, is covered in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? So, so in Matthew's account, in chapter 26, we actually learn that this night, you know the dinner party, right? So Jesus is at the dinner party with, with, with they don't call it a dinner party, it's just a dinner, but Jesus is at the dinner with Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and the crowds have come, right? But it turns out it was this very night after dinner that Judas would leave the table and go and meet the chief priests to collect his um, 30 pieces of silver. This night, this very night, to betray Jesus. What am I trying to paint for you, beloved? The plans were already in motion for Jesus to be put to death, and it is in the face of these plans that the Son of God enters Jerusalem, okay? It's on the backdrop of these plans that Jesus enters Jerusalem. We pick things up in verse 12. That's our passage for this morning, picking things up in verse 12. John writes, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Right? Remember, the news is spreading, right? We talked about that. The news is spreading, so they've heard, okay, Jesus is coming here. And so what do they do? Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They went out to meet him. So I want you to, to, to keep this scene in your mind, right? Um, Jesus is coming from Bethany to Jerusalem. Remember, it's about two miles, okay? He's coming from there, and he's already got a crowd with him, right? Why do I say Because in verse 9, a crowd had come the night before and was, was at, at, at Martha and Mary's house. So there's a crowd coming with Jesus from verse 9, and now in verse 12, John tells us of another massive crowd. Who are, the, who, who are these? These people in verse 12 are the people from all over Israel that have come to Jerusalem for the feast. Okay? They've come for the feast, 
from all over Israel, the Passover, they've heard the sign, right? The sign that he had done, verse 18, and that's why they came. And having heard this news, here come the crowds. So you've got these two crowds, right? One is coming from Bethany, one is coming from within Jerusalem out to meet him, and these two large crowds are converging around Jesus. When I say large, historians estimate some people say as many as a million people. Can you just, just let that sink in for a moment? A mil- like that's like the championship parade through a city, right? A million people, as many as a million, crowding in and coming and entering the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 13, look at verse 13, the iconic moment we all recognize, right, from Palm Sunday, John tells us the people took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, okay? So this, this Judean date palm, okay, that palm was a common tree in Israel, okay? It, it is to this day. If you go there today, you will see these, these palm trees. And what we must realize, though, is that for the Jews, for the Jews, this uh, palm branch was actually a symbol, okay? It's not just a branch, okay? It has a meaning. The palm branch symbolized for the Jews victory. Victory, okay? It was a celebration of victory. Historians tell us that whenever the nation of Israel defeated an enemy army and they were entering into the city, they would enter waving these palm branches, Okay, it was a celebration of a military victory, okay? A military victory, which tells you something already, right, about this crowd. For some reason, this crowd is thinking, they're already convinced that they've won some kind of, what? Victory. Think about, like, remember, Jesus is still coming, right? He's, he hasn't come yet, but they heard the news and they've already taken the branches to go and meet him. So they've already have in their mind that there is some kind of victory that they have won, right? Now, we're not sure what, what is the nature of that victory, but, but they sure are celebrating, right? They're celebrating something. So let's see what they say. Verse 13, look at verse 13. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, okay? The king of Israel. You know, that word Hosanna is one that we as Christians, we know it very well, right? I mean, we, 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 we sang it this morning, right? In fact, um, and yet I wonder if you and I fully understand what this word Hosanna means. Sometimes we use the word Hosanna like it's hallelujah, God be praised, Right? Like, like, a, like a, 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 a word of praise. What does Hosanna really mean? Well, as it turns out, I hope this is not boring for you, but I'm going to tell you anyways, okay? It's a bit of linguistic stuff. Um, the word Hosanna is actually transliterated from the Hebrew Hoshiana. Okay? Sounds like Shauna, right? No. Hoshiana. Okay, I, I, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I was listening to, okay, I'm trying to get the right, so forgive me, but Hoshiana. So, so, so that's what it means. So, so you, can, you can hear the similarity, right? Hoshiana, Hosanna, they, they, they're basically cousins, right? These, these words. And, and, and that phrase, Hoshiana, comes from one of the most well-known psalms 
for the Jews. Okay? This was a psalm they sung every single day in the temple during the Passover. Every day they would sing this psalm. It was a psalm that spoke of the promised Messiah, the psalm that talked about the cornerstone that the builders rejected. You all remember, know this as Christians. It was Psalm 118, okay? Psalm 118, and you can read the whole thing when you go home today, but I want to show you the verse that they're referring to. Verse, in verse 25, okay, of Psalm 118, See what the psalmist says. He says, Hoshiana, okay? Or in English, translated, save us, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. Hoshiana. Save us, we pray. And I don't know about you, church, but as I was reading that and thinking about that, like, I had to pause because... This is not a New Testament Christian singing this, right? Like this is not uh, um, uh, you and I singing this. We have the, the hindsight, the 2020 to see, look back. These are the Jews praying to be saved. Isn't that remarkable? They're asking to, they might as well be singing the song we sang today, right? Hosanna, you are the God who saves us, Right? That's what, they might as well be singing that. That's what it meant. Isn't that amazing? Indeed, they were speaking better, better than they knew. They were speaking better than they knew, but how absolutely beautiful and fitting, wasn't it? Fitting. Why do I say that? That the chosen people of God, right? The Israelites, who for all of the Old Testament, time after time after time, what do they do? Reject Him, right? Disobey Him, kill His prophets. And yet here in this moment, we see them praising, unwittingly praising His Son Jesus as the Messiah. Rightly identifying Him as the Christ, declaring Him as King, Thousands, of the Jew, thousands upon thousands of the Jewish people declaring or praying rather to be saved. Beloved, let me tell you something. Jesus was worthy of every single note that was sung that day every, and more. He was worthy of everything they said. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we're told that if they were silent, or if they were silenced, what would happen? The very stones would cry out. I mean, he's a cosmic king. He's not just king over Israel. Even the um, inanimate objects would have to cry out because he is worthy. He's worthy. For Jesus was the king who came to save, okay? Jesus was the king who came to save. But this brings up an issue for us. Um, it's a theological issue, okay? A theological uh, challenge. Because the question is, what, is, what did this king come to save us from? Okay? Now, I know the Christian answer, but I want you to think through it. What did this king come to save us from? As many of you know, many of you already know this, some of the very same lips that sing Hosanna in our passage today, 
right, and welcome Jesus as the king, the very same lips, some of the very same lips would become so disillusioned with the, with the so-called king that they thought he was going to be that they would go on to shout on Good Friday, in a few days, what would they shout? Crucify him, yeah. This, some of the very same lips that sing Hosanna today. How did this happen? Over a few days for them to have such a change. You see, friends, the reality is Jesus was not the king they expected. He wasn't. Dare I say today that for some of us, um, especially I'm talking about those in the world, Jesus is not the king they expect. He doesn't meet their expectations of what they think he should be. For the crowds and the disciples, when they saw these miracles, like he can raise the dead, what did it lead them to think? It led them to expect a salvation from who? Their enemies. From their enemies. My earthly enemies. The Jews were living under who? Under Rome. Right? Under the Roman rule. And so, when they, when they waved those palm branches, what were they really thinking? It symbolized not just any victory, a military victory. An overthrow, a deliverance from Caesar. A deliverance from Rome. That's what they expected. But this was not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating. Okay, And this is where the, the theology comes in. What is the nature of the kingdom of God? What is the nature of God's kingdom? We use that word a lot, don't we, as Christians? Are you, you know, entering the kingdom of God and we're in the kingdom? What does it really mean? What's the nature of it? Well, hear what Jesus says to Pilate. Pilate is questioning him, right, near the end of his, his earthly ministry in um, John 18, 36. What does Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. Right? It's not like all the other kingdoms that are of this world. Right? In fact, he says, if it were, what would happen? My servants would do what? We'd take up arms. Right? We'd fight. Think about it. How do earthly kingdoms advance in this earth? How are wars won? How are wars won? By the servants taking up arms and fighting. By force. That's how the earth works. Right? That's how earthly kingdoms work. But Christ came first to establish a spiritual kingdom. Okay? A spiritual kingdom. Why do I say that? How do we know that? When Jesus tells us how you and I can enter the kingdom, what are the entry requirements for you and I to be part of the kingdom of God? What are they? How do you become, how do you make him king? Jesus tells us in his own words, Mark 1.15, look at this. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's right here, and what does he say? What, what are we to do? Repent and believe in the gospel, you, right? This is, this is a matter of the heart. This is repent, turn from sin, turn to God, and believe. That is how you enter the kingdom, Right? That is what comprises the kingdom, people who have done this. 
not those who have picked up arms and fought, those who have done this, who have repented and believed the gospel. This is how the, the, the mustard seed grows, right? How does the kingdom of God grow? Like this. It's an invisible spiritual kingdom over which Christ reigns, which is slowly but surely becoming more and more visible. Why do I say that? As each one of you repents and believes the gospel and submits to Christ as king, all of a sudden, now, the kingdom that is invisible and spiritual is becoming visible in us. Do you, do, do, do you see that? We are the kingdom. We are advancing that kingdom forward as people repent and believe in the gospel. That's his kingdom. And can I just say, I am so grateful to God that so many of you are already part of this kingdom. Just think about that for a moment. You are already part. Yes, you're here. You may be a citizen of Canada. You may be a citizen of whatever. And you may have other, other obligations because of where you live. But ultimately, you are part of his kingdom if you have repented and believed. That was the entry requirement. And so the kingdom of God is already here, okay? It's already here, and now I'm going to say something that's very different, and you're going to think I'm crazy, but just hear me out, okay? It's already here, and yet, <laughs> and yet, there is a sense in which the kingdom is not yet, okay? Yeah, you're all looking, okay, okay. So the kingdom is already here. It inaugurated by Jesus Christ, right? He be, the kingdom is here. Kingdom is at hand. And yet, what do we pray? What did Jesus teach us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 10? Our Father, what does it say? Your kingdom come. Like, isn't that, is that present? That, that's a future tense, right? Your kingdom come. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet already filling the earth. It's not. It hasn't yet. The kingdom of God has not yet taken over the earth. It's not yet fully here. When Jesus returns in his second coming, he will consummate the kingdom. He will consummate. The, the kingdom will be on earth, but right now we still pray, your kingdom come, right? Your will be done, where? On earth as it is, as it already is in heaven, right? So now you're looking at me like, wow, what is this? What are we doing here, right? Um, kingdom is here. Kingdom is not yet. And I've got to be honest with you. As I was thinking through these things this past week, I was trying to prepare for this message, you know, the nature of Christ, the nature of his kingdom, the, the difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. I've got to tell you something. I was so overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed. My wife's here, she can attest. I couldn't even sleep one night because I, I was thinking about all this. I was just struggling to understand this God. Like, He is so unsearchable. He's unsearchable. And, and sometimes you can feel like, I am so woefully inadequate. That's how I felt this week. I just felt so inadequate for these things. I told my wife, I don't know if I can do this. And I just want to encourage you the way that I was encouraged. 
I was reminded that this inadequacy you feel, this humbling recognition that God is God and you are not, and there's a great distance between those two things, and there's a fear, and there's a reverence of the Lord, I was reminded that in fact, that is the beginning of wisdom. That is. Proverbs 9 verse 10. It is the fear of the, that posture of fear towards the Lord is where any wisdom or understanding can even begin. Can even begin. Believer, if you're out there and you're reading your Bible and you're getting discouraged, please know this. There's a reason God is God and you are not. And that's okay. It's a good thing. And so with that posture, in the last few verses, the Apostle John is going to show us now two means by which we can understand this God, okay? Two means we're going to look at, very simple, by which we can understand the king that we worship, okay? So look at verse, the first meme, meme, am I saying meme or mean? I mean mean, <laughs> okay? Way. This first way we can Understand the king we worship is through his written, what? His written word. Okay, so I want you, I want you to see this. Look at verse 14. We're going back to the text. Jesus found a, don a young donkey, okay, John's telling us, and sat on it, and here's the key, just as it is written. Okay? Just as it is written, and then verse 15, he gives you the quote, Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The first means by which we can understand God is through his written word. Okay? I know that sounds simple, but it is important that we remember this. That it's through his written... Want, I want you to see how this works. In verse 14... John is describing what's happening, right? He, he's looking at the scene of what's happening. Okay, so, so Jesus is, is riding in on a donkey. He doesn't enter on a chariot, right? He doesn't enter on a, on a horse, right? Um, uh, like Caesar would. He enters on a young donkey. And as a side note to you, um, no one ever entered a war on a donkey, right? You got right? Did, right? I mean, that's what horses were for. Right? You entered war on a horse. In fact, if you want to read later, Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ, when he comes to judge the world and establish his kingdom, how does he come? On a white horse. On a white horse. No, donkeys, donkeys were not for war. Donkeys carried messages of peace. They carried messages of peace. But this aside... When John says in verse 14, go back to verse, yeah, thank you. When, when John says, just as it was written in verse 14, what he's showing us is that this is the way the disciples could have understood what was happening, right? Like, like you're seeing all these things, everything that's happening right now, Jesus is entering the triumphant entrance, people are singing Hosanna, and then there's this young donkey running around, like, like this is not by chance. Sometimes the disciples might say, oh, oh, this is all wonderful. No, 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 this is in exact accordance and fulfillment of the written word of God. 
If only they remembered, church. Indeed, this is what God's word said would happen. They could have understood. Zechariah 9.9, I want to show you the exact quote. Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And if only they remembered this next part, okay? This next part. Righteous and having salvation is he. Why do I say if only they remembered this? If they knew or if they remembered that the coming king was meant to be righteous. Righteous. That's exactly who Jesus was. Without sin, perfect righteousness. How important that the salvation Jesus was going to provide was directly connected to his righteousness. I mean, now in, as Christians, in hindsight, we're like, wow, that's 2020, right? But, but for them, they, they didn't see this. Like, how can Jesus die for your sin? If he was a sinner, he can't die for your sin. He's got to die for his sin. He was righteous so that he can now take your place. How can you and I stand before a holy God because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus that has now been transferred to your account, right? Counted to you, imputed to you by faith. Do you see, church, that the written word of God is our first means by which we can understand the one we worship? To understand him, it begins with the word of God. And the second means, okay, comes in the final verse. Look at verse 16. The second means by which we can understand God. And this is not as apparent, okay? It's a little bit less clear, so just follow me, please. I'll give you, the, I'll give you what it is, and then we'll go into it, okay? The second uh, way is by the Holy Spirit, okay? By the Holy Spirit, okay? Let's look at verse 16 and take it slow. John says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. Now, after all they have witnessed, remember, they have been with him for years, right? For at least three years, face to face with Jesus. They already had the Old Testament, right? When was that finished? Malachi, when was it written? 400 years before Christ. They had the complete Old Testament, all the prophecies pointing to Jesus. They had all of that, and somehow they did not understand and I tell you the truth, church, if the, if the verse ended there, it would be such a sad, hopeless case for all of us. I mean, if those disciples who are with Jesus don't understand, what hope do we have, right? But in verse 16, there are these two gracious words. Do you see them? Where it says, they did not understand at first. At first. Why is that full of grace? Because by saying that, we know at first means what? That at some point, that at some moment in the future, some later time, a particular point in time, things would change for these disciples. It would change. All of a sudden, the disciples who lacked understanding at first were now going to gain understanding. And the question I have for you is, when did this occur? Look at verse 16. When did they make this connection? When did they get it? 
When did they really understand? Verse 16 says, when Jesus was what? Glorified, okay? Was glorified. Now, when did that happen? Some people will say, well, it's, well, it's after Jesus rose from the dead, right? He, he died on the cross on Good Friday, on Easter, Easter, Resurrection Sunday. He rose from the dead. That's when he was glorified. Well, yes and no. After that, he was on earth for several days, and then he ascended into heaven, right? So really, when we say Jesus was glorified, we mean his resurrection and then also his ascension. But you've got to ask the question, how, what changed at his ascension? What was so different for the disciples? What did they, what changed for them? What did they receive when Jesus was glorified? John chapter 7 verse 39 tells us they received the Holy Spirit. That's what changed. That's what changed, church. Who is called the helper. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that precious? That you have a helper? Are you looking for a helper? In your walk? John 16, 7, you have a helper, church. This is what my wife, I'm not trying to put her on, on a pedestal, but this week, that's what she reminded me when I was struggling. In my inadequacy, she said, have you called out to the helper? The Holy Spirit. She didn't call, her, call him the helper. She said the Holy Spirit, but, but um, it's true. We have a helper. And this is how they understood God's word. This is through the Holy Spirit that dwelled within them, John 14, 17, who would teach them all things. How did the disciples all of a sudden understand? How did they, what brought to remembrance everything Jesus said? The Holy Spirit, who would guide them into all truth, John 16, 13. Have you ever wondered how these bumbling disciples could go on to write 27 books in the New Testament? That we, that we call the Word of God that is without error and it's infallible? How do they do it? Not in their own strength. Not in their own strength. No. As they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. It's the Holy Spirit. Dear Christian, what an advantage you have. If you're a believer this morning, you have such an advantage because you have this very helper is, is, is in you and with you today. I want to show you this. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 2.12, We have received not the spirit of the world. Okay? People in the world have the spirit of the world. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Okay? We're more on that later in terms of compassion and grace and patience. But, but we have received what? The spirit who is from God and why? What does it help us do? That we might understand. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Amen. So as we close, church, these are the means by which the disciples could understand the king we worship. The complete written word of God, right? And the helper, the Holy Spirit. So I want to share a quote with you, okay, before we close. And it's a little lengthy, but I hope you'll bear with me, please. Um, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, they talk about these two means, okay? The, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. 
and I think it just beautifully brings together uh, what, we've, what we've shared this morning, okay? Um, just uh, old English, okay? But just try to, so I'll take it slow and follow along, okay? Um, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. The heavenliness of this matter, the efficacy of this doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the different parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof. These are all arguments whereby it evidences itself to be the Word of God. Whew, that's a run-on sentence, right? Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of this infallible truth and the divine authority therein is from the inward working of the Holy Spirit. Bearing witness by and with this word in our hearts. Isn't that true, church? Do you know people who've read the Bible and left without belief? Do you know people? What do they lack? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So as I close, to the believer here, believers here, let us not forget that at first, at first, you were just like those disciples. You did not understand. And if you remember that, it will help you and me to have compassion and have patience with people who do not understand today. Have patience with them. Show compassion to them. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, you and I would not understand this word. And may we thank God that His word and His spirit are helping us to grow, right? Are helping us to understand the King we worship. That's to the believer and to the unbeliever here. Um, I know there are some of you here who do not yet believe in God. Don't yet truly, you haven't really repented and believed. And I want to tell you something. The kingdom of God is already here. It started with Christ, but it's already here, friends. It's already here. And though you may not see it, you may not see it, Christ has come, and assuredly I tell you, His kingdom is growing. It is growing, like a mustard seed, but one day it's going to take over everything, but it is growing, and it shall not fail. There is nothing in the universe that can thwart the kingdom of God. Not Caesar, not the U.S. superpower, no one, not Russia, no one. His kingdom will grow, and soon and very soon, this king, Jesus Christ, is going to return to this earth to consummate his kingdom. He's going to return to do that. And so the time to repent and believe the gospel is now. It's not tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. Tomorrow may not come. The time to repent and believe is now, to declare with the crowds, Hoshiana, right? 
Save me, I pray. For if you will do that, if you will do that, dear friend, if you will do that this morning, by his amazing love, the king who died and rose again will accept you into his eternal kingdom. Church, if you can stand as we, um, as we prepare to worship the Lord. And let's pray and um, ask God to bless his word. Father God, I just thank you so much for this morning you've given us to just unpack this, 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 this incredible event, your entry into Jerusalem, your long-awaited entry into Jerusalem, the city that rejected and, and you and disobeyed and, and, and killed the prophets beforehand. Oh, that they would have repented and believed so that they could be saved, they could be drawn close to you. But Father, here we are this morning, and, and still your gracious offer of salvation stands. That if anyone, anyone here will turn from their sin, turn from their wicked ways, and just look to Christ and believe upon Him, they can be saved. They can enter this kingdom. They can submit to this King and have eternal life in the presence of His good and gracious kingdom. God, I pray, if there's even one person in the sanctuary this morning for whom this applies, may they submit to you this morning. And for those of us who already have entered the kingdom, thank you, God. May we not forget that we have not come to this understanding of you by our own strength. In fact, God, if we tried that, we would leave woefully inadequate and discouraged and defeated and in hopeless despair. But because of your written word and your helper, the Holy Spirit, our hearts can understand the truth. And the truth can set us free from the kingdoms of this world to, to submit ourselves to you as king. So I pray that you would help us to have patience and love and compassion for those who do not yet understand. And may we, may we take steps to grow in our understanding, knowing that you have given us your spirit, you have given us your word. We really don't have any excuse to bring before you, God, for not growing in our understanding of you. And so as we worship you now, may we worship with understanding. Worship with understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.